Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wednesday the 8th of September 2004. The mountain west regions of Colorado, a region graced with beautiful and magnificent mountain ranges, and home to the White River National Forest and Glenwood Springs. That particular September Wednesday had been somewhat chilly as the autumn cold fronts pushed away the summer's heats. And it was a Wednesday that would go down in history as the day that one of the biggest mysteries in Glenwood Springs would be uncovered. A mystery that would change the lives of those involved forever. Skeletal remains were discovered in the middle of the woods, and a notebook containing a final message sprouted a whole host of theories and mystery. Dear Lib, I should write in case my situation doesn't improve. This may be the end of my journey. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. I have just launched 23 brand new stickers on my shop, joshuamiles.shop. Now I spent so long working on these stickers, ensuring that they're fully waterproof and durable. And we actually make them in my house. Uh, I'm super, super proud of all of them. Some of the stickers were designed and drawn by me and some designed by the wonderful Sammy Illustrates. Each sticker costs £1.50, that's three US dollars, one euro 95 or three Canadian dollars. And if you buy four, you actually get one for free as well. So let me show you a few of them. Here are a few of my favorites. I have them over here. There's quite a few. I, it's difficult. They're, I love them all so much. It's really difficult to choose some of the favorites. So this one is called the Tea Spill Sticker. You can see that. It is beautiful and this is a vinyl sticker fully waterproof so you can put it on your water bottle and put it in the dishwasher or wash it by hand i'd advise washing it by hand just to be on the safe side and it will stay on we've done quite a few tests of putting these stickers on things and rubbing them underwater and like simulating cleaning them a lot to make sure that they are completely waterproof and they are and they are beautiful stickers. Uh, so this is Tea Spill sticker. This was designed by Sammy Illustrates. This is Torn Hearts, which is like a little skeleton with a heart being broke. This is also by Sammy. I don't know if you can see that very well. I'll also put them on the screen if this isn't working very well. I absolutely love this one. It says, Shh, I'm watching true crime videos, which is honestly such a mood. I also love this one too. It says, I'd rather be watching true crime YouTube videos, which same whenever i'm at a social event i'm like i'd rather be watching some true crime youtube videos i love this one so much it'll adhere to pretty much anything um this one is called pick your poison and it is quite a simple little poison bottle designed by me it's quite a cute little poison bottle these will look so good on a notebook because we have notebooks on the store or on your water bottle hydro flask laptop cover everywhere there are so many more that i really want to show you but we don't have time like we have this cat design called bandit cat absolutely beautiful i love him so much he's so cute and there's so many more really really awesome designs on there some simplistic some are more like sayings and like quotes and some are quite complex pieces of art and i love them all so much i've been working really really hard on all of these designs and 
spending so long trying to perfect the process to make sure that they're the best quality that we can get and that they are super waterproof and super durable and they all have a matte finish. They're not glossy stickers, but they have this lovely matte finish to them, which I think just makes it feel so nice. And yeah, I love them so much. We also actually have an extra product, which is kind of like a lucky dip. And this product is called Misfits. So Misfits are the stickers that aren't quite perfect. They're slightly cut wrong or the color's a little bit off, but they still deserve a loving home. We don't want to waste um, these resources. We want to find them a loving home too. So you can actually get five random Misfits stickers for between £1.50 and £2.50. You get five for that price, which is really, really cheap cheap so make sure you check them out too over on joshuamiles.shop shipping costs have also been reduced so don't worry if you're not in the uk i got you so jump over to joshuamiles.shop and grab your fully waterproof and durable vinyl stickers before they sell out 10 percent of each purchase is donated to the dna dough project it's the same with every product that we have on the store so go check them out i love them all so so much i'm so proud of them um, and i hope you like them too also just a quick note i've put everything on the store um, besides these new stickers at 15% off so if you didn't manage to get yourself a hoodie or a notebook then you can go and do that too if you if you want to um, they're on there too so make sure you go over there and check it out um, we've worked really really hard in it and I I hope you enjoy what we have on there. We'll be releasing more um, products over the year, more stickers, maybe some more, more notebooks, some more apparel and things like that, um, which are kind of cute. So uh, please don't hesitate to go check them out. Um, JoshuaMouse.shop. The White River National Forest is the most visited national forest in the United States, predominantly being visited by those who wish to go skiing on the snowy mountains in the area. White River National Forest boasts 12 different ski areas within its boundaries, each extremely popular with tourists and residents alike. Though the National Forest doesn't just play host to avid skiers, but also to hunters. With wildlife such as deer, elk, mountain sheep and mountain goats, bears, mountain lions, bobcats, lynx, moose, raptors, waterfowl, trout and so many more species of animals, it's clear to see how hunters and fishermen are drawn to the picturesque scenery and diverse ecology. However, on that one autumn Wednesday in September of 2004, two hunters would stumble upon the complete unexpected. Two bowmen were tracking an animal near Windy Point, a campground located on Dillon Reservoir that plays host to an abundance of activities such as camping, fishing, boating, bicycling, hiking and more. After an intense day of stalking this animal, the two bowmen stumbled across a collapsed tent at a remote campsite in a wooded area north of Glenwood Springs. The makeshift campsite housing this nylon tent appeared to have been left untouched, as if whoever had constructed it had just left without any of their possessions. Curiosity, as it would to many, got the better of the two bowmen, who decided to take a look inside the collapsed tent. But when they did, they discovered a scene that would haunt them for decades to come. Within the tent, the skeletal remains of an unidentified man stared back at the two bowmen, who immediately contacted the authorities. The man within the tents appeared to have been camping alone, though he was not alone in his fate. According to the NamUs database, there are currently 86 other active, unidentified decadents listed within Colorado, the majority of whom found in national parks and forests just like this one. The campsite itself had been quite literally in the middle of nowhere within these woods, located in the drainage of No Name Creek, about 9,700 feet above sea level and about six miles as the crow flies from Glenwood Springs, though a 12-mile hike to the town. The fact alone that these two bowmen had discovered this makeshift campsite was reported by the press to have been one in a million, it's the kind of location where you would have had to have been in the right place at the right time on top of it to be able to see it.
authorities transported the skeletal remains to undergo examination by a pathologist to try and determine identity and cause of death. The pathologist initially determined the age of the unidentified male to have been between 40 years old and 60 years old. However, this was ultimately expanded to an age range of 27 to 26 years old at the time of death, giving a significantly large range for the birth year from 1939 to 1977. That's a whole lot of people born between those years. Due to the state of decomposition, the remains being skeletal at the time of the discovery, the man's hair color, eye color, and weight were unable to be determined. Though they were able to estimate the unidentified man's height to have been somewhere between 5 foot 11 inches and 6 foot 2 inches. Despite these remains being skeletal, several indications as to the man's identity were actually uncovered. The skeletal remains showed severe degeneration to the man's back and neck, indicative of someone suffering from severe back pain during their life. A forensic odontologist examined the teeth of the skeletal remains and discovered that the man had undergone extensive and high-quality dental work, including gold work, crowns, bridges, and fillings in almost every tooth. This dental work was recorded and entered into the case files so that they could later be compared against records of any missing person's case. The cause of death was extremely difficult to determine for the medical examiners, resulting in it being listed as unknown, probably natural. It's important to note that investigators found no reason to believe the man's death had been as a result of suicide. Garfield County Sheriff Lou Valerio told the media that, quote, if somebody says, I'm going to drive to the mountains of Colorado and kill myself, they'll kill themselves in their car or park and walk into the forest and kill themselves. But this case is not like that. He just didn't leave his name on anything. The makeshift campsite was immediately cordoned off as a crime scene to allow forensics to go in to try and uncover any further clues as to the identity of the unknown man. It was quickly determined that the unidentified man had been a smoker due to cigarettes and smoking paraphernalia being located within the man's tent. Investigators hypothesized the man's favorite brand to have been Camel cigarettes, as that had been the only brands within the man's possessions. The skeletal remains themselves had been found inside a sleeping bag within the collapsed tents. This sleeping bag was considered to have been one of the major leads within this case due to the information it provided. It was branded Perth, Australia and Standard Long. This gave the investigators a possible lead as to the nationality of the unidentified man, recording him to have been possibly Australian. A green camping pillow was also found within the tents, as could probably be expected. Numerous other personal items were discovered in the campsite, including that of a notebook, which we'll come back to later on in this episode. Currency was also found within the man's possessions, with the most recent notes or coin being dated 1999. This, at least, helped to narrow down the period in which the man had been in the mountains to the five years between 1999 and 2004. Six $100 bills, one $10 bill, one $5 bill, and five $1 bills were ultimately found on the campsite, again, all dated no later than 1999. Specialized forensic examiners inspected the tent and determined that it had been exposed to at least one winter in the Colorado mountains, but couldn't provide any more information than that. So this man had perished in the mountains at some point between 1999 and 2003, or very early 2004. Investigators were truly at a loss as to trying to determine the man's identity. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
It's important to further discuss the other personal items located within the man's campsite, as they could provide further clues within this case. The man had been wearing a wristwatch when he had died, a watch with Roman numerals. The brand of the watch has not been made public. Within the man's clothing and accessories, a brown and black pair of Timberland hiking boots sized 9M were uncovered. A black leather belt that the man had been wearing, which presumably had been attached to the man's trousers, which had rotted away, was found. Further to these, a yellow and green plastic poncho, a pair of blue wool socks with duct tape wrapped around the toes, and a blue and black Jansport backpack were recovered from the campsite. Several toiletry items were also recovered from the scene, including a single blue hairbrush, an empty Tylenol bottle, fingernail clippers, tweezers, a package of foam earplugs, and a pack of razor blades. The camping equipment found at the campsite included the green Eureka Dome tent, a butane stove with two fuel cans, a sweet water water filtration kit, a tent repair kit, though it's unknown whether it had been used, two green plastic military-style canteens, a round red and blue canteen, a compass, an aluminium cooking pot, a spoon, and two drinking cups. Again, I'm listing these personal items, as they may play a role in finding an identity for the Flat Tops John Doe, and some of them play a role in the theories surrounding this case, which we'll discuss later on in this episode. Some further miscellaneous items were located within the man's possessions. Two games, a 4-in-1 Radio Shack game, which is a single-player game, and a pocket-sized Battleship game, which is a two-player game. Two National Geographic moisture-proof trail maps of the flat top, with a route drawn across them to the area where the remains were discovered, though it was lacking a starting point. A pair of sunglasses, a pair of reading glasses, a magnifying glass, a pair of silver sharper image binoculars, 20 packs of camel unfiltered cigarettes, eight multicolored butane lighters, two plastic zipper bags, a bell, pepper spray, again it's unknown whether that was used, and a roll of duct tape. This all brings us to one of the biggest mysteries in this case, a notebook discovered in the man's tent. The notebook was a green spiral-bound notebook, and its contents perplexed experts and investigators. The Colorado Bureau of Investigations managed to decipher most of the writings within the notebook, though much of the notebook's contents were illegible due to exposure to the elements. The cover of the green notebook had a hand-drawn heart in the centre, with various figures in size, including what can only be presumed to be a cat and maybe a glider. The first page within this notebook was extremely weathered. We'll come back to this first page in just a moment. And the pages that followed, the next four or five pages, had also been weathered, their contents becoming increasingly difficult to interpret though a message within those pages was decoded and appeared to contain a request for somebody to claim his remains and cremate him and conduct a service. The first page, however, detailed something far more foreboding and far more heartbreaking. The entry is addressed to somebody called Lib, and it reads, quote, I should write in case my situation here doesn't improve. This may be the end of my journey. Would like for you to claim the body services or memorial cremation. The next section was incredibly difficult to decipher. The CBI, the Colorado Bureau of Investigations, found it extremely difficult to find anything distinguishable and readable, though a handful of individual words were successfully extracted from the pages. These included I, thought, and the word flavor, spelt F-L-A-V-O-R. The spelling of the word flavor in that manner actually indicated something considerably significant. You see, flavour, spelt in that way, is the American version of the word. In the UK and in Australia, it is spelt with the letter U, so F-L-A-V-O-U-R. Does this rule out the hypothesis that John Doe is Australian, as the investigators had previously believed? 
This word is quite controversial within this case, as many people actually believe the word to be saved and not flavour. I decided to do my own investigation into this and try to see if I could use modern technology to try and distinguish whether it is in fact flavour or if it is the word saved. I brought the image into Photoshop, reduced the saturation and adjusted the contrast and brightness so that it would be easier to run through artificial intelligence image enhancement software. Taking the output from Photoshop, I ran the image through a few different AI image enhancement softwares, focusing on noise removal and artifact reduction. I then took the output from these pieces of software and ran them through other artificial intelligence algorithms, being very wary of the AI creating markings on the image that weren't actually there. Finally, I ran the result through OCR software, which reads the image and extracts characters and words from the picture. Obviously, without being able to process a high-quality scan of this page, with the images I had available, this will only reveal to us clarity in our indications for this word, more a suggestion of what it could be rather than a fact. I actually had considerable difficulty in trying to get the software to recognise words within this entire image, so I focused in on the area that had the sentence containing the suspected word flavour and this too yielded little results, so I decided to go the old-fashioned way. Let's take a look at the sentence in question, as the sentence itself may provide context clues. You can easily distinguish the first words to be if. You can also easily make out I and get, though it's important to note that the I may also be a T. I am personally more inclined to believe this to be the letter T, as when we take a look at the words if at the start of the sentence, you can see how the writer has clearly marked the top horizontal line, middle vertical line and bottom line of the letter I. Though the second occurrence of the suspected I does not appear to have a lower horizontal line in the same manner, it looks more likely to be the letter T. What the words that comes prior to the T or I is very unclear. So let's take a look at the end of the sentence, the controversial word. You can see how someone may read this word to be flavour. The ending of the word is somewhat hard to distinguish. But if you take a look at how the word fits into the rest of the sentence, it just doesn't quite fit in my opinion. If blank gets flavour. This note was written by the man with the knowledge that he may not be found and that he may die. The following pages show this, with his plans for claiming his body and the cremation. Ultimately though, I was unable to make any progress with the low quality image I had. Let me know in the comments section below if you have any suggestions as to what it may say. I've left a link to the photograph in the description so that you can have a go. I did spend way too long on this. I'm fairly sure I started to see letters and words that weren't actually there. And this is my final results, although I don't think it's super accurate, unfortunately. You can see how difficult it is to identify these characters. The authorities and experts spent a lot of time and effort trying to decipher this page, and it seems they had little success. The second page in the notebook was even less decipherable. CBI analysts state that it appeared the writer had no clear point. This section reads, quote, Third choice, take them up in a glinder. I promise not to get sick on you. Following this, the writings become illegible, though more common words were able to be identified, such as this, you, and not. On another page, it reads, R on the, would you call her, have it sense you because I want it to wear. Further words and characters recovered from this notebook read be uh, mice are going. A user on WebSleuths on a thread discussing this case proposed that the first page may read Dear Lib, thought I should write to you in case my situation here doesn't improve. This may be the end of my journey. I would like for you to claim the body. No services or much real ceremony. Stingy fool, as I thought, if I don't get saved. This user went on to suggest that page three may read, Bronze star on the wall, would you call her and have it sent to you because I would want it to be wherever my ashes are going. Now it's important to note that each of the pages recovered had the following text at the bottom, quote, any $25,000, which could suggest that the writings were the last will and testament of the unidentified man. Perhaps any is actually the initials of the man. We may never know. Naturally, and as you can likely gather, this case full of mystery has garnered a lot of attention online, and many theories have surfaced as a result. 
We're only going to touch on the respectable theories out of respect for the unidentified man and his family. These theories stretch anywhere from an accidental fall that resulted in a fatal injury to a glide accident or even a suicide due to terminal illness. Let's take a look. One of the primary characteristics of the unidentified man focused on within this case was his birthplace, and this quickly became grounds for a distinct theory. It was evident from the analysis of his skeletal remains that the man had a very serious degenerative disease that affected his back and neck. It is suggested that this degenerative disease would have caused the man to be in severe pain. This would have meant that he would have likely visited a doctor or multiple doctors to try to alleviate the pain he was in. Perhaps the man had been seeking a peaceful place to spend his last few days, rather than spending his last moments on this earth in a hospital or at home. It isn't publicly known what type of degenerative disease the man suffered from, but it is plausible to suggest that the disease triggered other ailments within the man's body, both physically and mentally. For this theory to be plausible, investigators must know for certain the illness or degenerative disease that he suffered from and that it must have been extreme enough to drive him to suicide, a disease with no cure, a disease that caused him to be in a state of constant anguish, physically and mentally. Following on from the previous theory, the degenerative disease that this man was believed to have suffered from would have likely had knock-on negative effects on the man's mental health. Anyone who suffers from chronic pain will know how desperate you can become to alleviate the pain you're in, and it would be likely that this man had attempted as many avenues as possible in his attempts to alleviate the pain that he had been in. If there had been no cure, no way to manage the pain, his mental health would have taken a severe impact. I spoke with a friend of mine, Dr. Soham Das, who is a consultant forensic psychiatrist about the links between chronic pain and mental health. Let's take a look at what he told me. Hello, my name is Dr. Shaham Das and I'm a consultant forensic psychiatrist and the host of the YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. I'm going to talk about the connection between chronic pain and mental disorders. So chronic pain can cause a range of mental disorders. The most common are anxiety and depression. In fact, those two diagnoses are about four times more common in people with chronic pain compared to the normal population. Sometimes the anxiety can be specifically about the cause of the pain. And occasionally you can even get rarer disorders. So I once saw a woman in a clinic several years ago who developed a psychosis and she had these chronic headaches. I don't think the pain caused the psychosis because she had other predisposing factors like she had a family history of schizophrenia, but I do think the stress from her chronic pain precipitated it. And she became, she became quite transfixed on the cause of her headaches and developed some delusional beliefs. So specifically, she believed that certain members of her family were like emitting radiation and had given her brain cancer. Although, as I said, that's very rare. So when we think about the mechanisms that cause mental disorders from chronic pain, there's the obvious connection, which is the emotional distress from being in constant pain. So we know, for example, that chronic pain can release stress hormones and certain neurochemicals which are connected to depression. But then there's also the less obvious kind of indirect connections. So for example, people in chronic pain often can't sleep properly. So they're left exhausted and they lack energy and motivation, or they just struggle in their functioning. So they might not be able to work, they might not be able to concentrate, might not be able to do like housework or enjoy family life, such as playing with their kids, etc. So all of these factors can indirectly contribute to their depression. And on top of all of that, there's somatization. So somatization is a recognized psychiatric uh, phenomenon, which is where uh, mental distress comes out as physical pain. So sometimes there can be no medical cause for the pain, apart from the actual uh, mental d anguish, or sometimes it can be that there is already an established physical pain, but it's exacerbated by mental distress. So you start to go in a, in a vicious cycle. 
The other thing I think is important to say is there's a big connection between suffering chronic pain and suicide. So it's a really significant risk factor, particularly if the sufferer has tried to alleviate the pain in many different ways, taking painkillers, for example, and if they've been unsuccessful, because then they're facing the prospect of a life in pain, which obviously is connected to general pessimism and negative thoughts about the future, including hopelessness. Thank you so much, Saham, for your expert inputs. I encourage all those who are watching to jump over to his channel and subscribe. He posts videos using his expert knowledge and past experience about true crime cases and mental health. Go show him some love from the true crime community here on YouTube. His link is in the description. People can develop mental illness for a variety of different reasons, financial, marital problems, the sudden death of a loved one, chronic pain, trauma, unemployment, amongst many others. Oftentimes, those with suicidal intentions retreat to a quiet place to go through with their plans. We know that this unidentified man had been an avid hiker due to the gear he owned, so perhaps this remote spot in the mountains had been that quiet spot for him. It is suggested that the man had gone up to the mountains simply to unwind and then decided that it was a good location for his final resting place. It is then theorized that he wrote a goodbye note to somebody close to him, hence the writing in his notebook commencing with Dear Lib. His chronic back pain likely being a cause of great depression for the man. Internet sleuths then suggest that the completely empty Tylenol bottle, a brand name for the common medication paracetamol, could have been how he had intended to end his life. And as his remains had been skeletal, there has been no way to test for an overdose within his system, accidental or otherwise, so this cannot be conclusively ruled out. Though, as we discussed earlier in this episode, the authorities dismissed the possibility that this had been a suicide due to the characteristics of where the man's remains had been found. Investigators believe that someone who had wanted to commit suicide would have parked up in a car park within the National Forest and walked into the woods, not set up camp and take provisions with him, a butane stove, cutlery, board games, etc. Another prevalent theory within the discussions of this case was that the man had met a tragic end due to an injury he had sustained while hiking. In the man's green notebook, he wrote, I should write in case my situation here doesn't improve. This sentence provides the basis for the theory. What did he mean about his situation here? It leads the reader to believe that whatever situation the man had been in had been tied to his immediate surroundings. Within this theory, a sub-theory also emerges, the suggestion that there may have been a second person with the man. This sub-theory relies on the fact that the man had been carrying two canteens, two cups, and a pocket-sized battleship game, which is a two-player game. To some, this suggested that there had been a second person, and perhaps the reason nobody has heard from the second person is due to this second person going to get help and succumbing to the environment. The second person would have had to endure the harsh elements of the Rocky Mountains, and might even have been injured themselves. And as the man had written in the notebook that he had been running low on food and had also been exposed to the elements himself, maybe he thought he should write some final words and plans for after his death in the notebook. We still don't know who exactly Lib was, the person the man addressed his writings to in the notebook. Perhaps Lib had been the second person and had perished in the mountains. If this theory is to be believed, it means that not only did the man die waiting for the return of somebody he loved, but it also means that there could very well be a second body hidden somewhere within the mountains. The glider accident theory is one of the lesser discussed theories within this case, though it is still worth mentioning. Some people familiar with this case believe that the man had perished as a result of a glider accident. One of the drawings on the cover of the notebook, as some suggest, appears to be that of a glider. This could indicate that the man had been passionate about gliders. On the second page of the notebook, 
This believes the writer mentions a glider for the first time, though it's important to note that his sleeping bag was branded as standard long, which is also a type of glider. From the drawing of this glider, some people deduce the picture was that of a non-powered glider. This could suggest that if somebody is experienced with this kind of glider, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for that person to carry some camping gear in case you land somewhere and can't be easily found. There are several gliding and sailplane clubs along the immediate area where the unidentified man had been found, and he could have taken off from any of those areas and landed or crashed in the flat tops where he set up camp. A large flat area such as the flat tops surrounded by mountains is ideal for providing a natural lift for a non-powered glider. However, there is no available information as to whether there had been a crashed glider or lost pilot in the area, something that would have been reported in local newspapers. Further to this, not so many people carry around 20 packs of camel unfiltered cigarettes for a simple glider trip. Those alone suggest they had intended to camp for a while. Though hikers prefer to hike lights with only essentials within their backpacks, as hiking up mountains with a heavy backpack is extremely tedious, especially for somebody with a suspected degenerative disease. A major contradiction to this glider theory is the discovery of the two National Geographic maps found at the man's campsite. These waterproof maps suggest that the man had entered the flat-top wilderness at a trailhead in the north and hiked for about four or five days across elevations of 11,000 feet before eventually setting up his camp on a southern drainage at around 9,700 feet. The maps further showed a route that had been drawn from the trailhead to the area he would later be discovered. Now, some people argue that these maps may not have belonged to the unidentified man, Perhaps he had picked the maps up after they had been discarded by another hiker who had marked this route. This case is truly one filled with unknowns. The same National Geographical waterproof, tearproof maps are still up for sale on the National Forest websites and information points, suggesting that they had been purchased on arrival to the National Forest either by him or by somebody else. It's only natural for the authorities to run comparisons against missing persons databases in the hopes of identifying this John Doe. Members of the public also contacted the investigators, suggesting the identity of the flat tops John Doe to be that of a variety of missing men. 22 men have ultimately been ruled out as being the John Doe. Those 22 men are Bruce Scott McAllister, Carl Jackson, Gerald Kenneth Solenbarger, Jerry Dale Lesser, Jonathan Alger, Keith Reinhards, Kieran Burke, Larry Deans Watts, Michael Jerry McClure, Paul Hodgden, unfortunately no picture is available of Paul, Paul Skibar, Paul Edward Buckley, Richard Dean Roberts, Richard Kirk Mayer, Robert Scott, again, unfortunately, there's no picture available for Robert. Robert William Fisher, Roderick Lester Cates, Shane Kelly Turner, Thomas Michael Nickel, Victor Lee Abita, Walter Reinhardt, again, unfortunately, no picture available, and William Brennan. Even though many people have been ruled out as being the identity of the flat tops John Doe, two particular men haven't. The first man we will discuss is a man called Mark Allen Husk. Now, the dates on Mark's case are contradictory, confusing, and sometimes even impossible to form a solid, verifiable timeline, though most sources agree on most of them, so we'll go through the dates that have been verified. The last sighting of Mark was on the 10th of October 2003 at his residence on Old Chicago Road in Ferrisburg, Vermont. Although there are conflicting reports on the date he went missing, it appears that this particular date was the most reported. Mark had been born on the 18th of December 1953 and had been 49 years old when he had disappeared. He stood at 5 foot and 10 inches tall, weighed around 150 pounds with hazel green eyes and dirty blonde hair, often reported as being sandy in colour. Mark wore wireframe glasses, not the ones that are in his picture, 
and is reported to have been wearing earth tone coloured clothes, hiking boots and a small black backpack when he was last seen. Mark has a scar on the lower right lip towards his jawbone, a possible faint scar on his neck and a scar on his elbow. Mark was believed to have been despondent in a low mood prior to his disappearance for reasons unknown to the public. His depression had been listed within his case file and reported to have been a mental illness he'd been battling with for some time. Mark Husk is an avid outdoorsman and has been known to travel throughout the United States for extended periods of time by himself, though it's unclear whether he usually told people where he was intended on going. Mark was further known to travel on buses out of the Amtrak station, sometimes headed to New York City. In April of 2019, a member of the public suggested online that it could be possible that the flat tops John Doe could be Mark Allen Husk. It's unknown whether this potential match had been reported to the authorities straight away, but we do know that a Reddit user called you slash haunted Bundy made a post on the 1st of September 2020 in which they detail that they had submitted the potential connection to the authorities. In the comments section of this post, a Reddit user by the name of you slash terrible Muriel pointed out that there had been an update in the case in May of 2020 prior to this Reddit post being made, an update that had resulted from a tip given in 2019. This update reads, Good afternoon, Redacted. First of all, thank you for the work you have done in an attempt to identify this person, as well as locate Mr. Mark Allen Husk. I am working with several agencies on these two cases. I'm hoping to have a DNA sample for Mr. Husk soon, so I can get it compared to the unidentified remains case. Sadly, the process to identify remains, as well as locating a missing person, is rather lengthy for everyone involved, but I am diligently working on this case and hope soon I will be able to find the identity of the remains. Mark Allen Husk would be 67 years old today. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Mark, please contact Vermont State Police at 802-388-4919. Our second potential match is a missing man from Scarborough, a coastal suburb of Perth, Australia. The details of Wayne Drouet's case isn't as widely known to the flat top John Doe case as Mark's, but as several people have made connections between Wayne and our John Doe, it is worth taking a closer look into Wayne's disappearance. Wayne Dennis George Drouet was born in November of 1945. He had a fairly regular upbringing and ultimately got married and fathered two children. When his two children grew up, they too had children, giving Wayne numerous grandchildren. Wayne had spent 20 years serving in the Australian Army and had been a former Special Air Services Regiment Administration Sergeant who had served in Vietnam. At the time of Wayne's disappearance, he had been 57 years old. He was a Caucasian male with a medium build and receding grey hair. Wayne stood at 5 foot 11 inches and actually had a cardiac condition, though no details relating to any arthropathy have been released to the public, so it's unclear whether Wayne had also suffered with any back or neck issues. Wayne had green eyes and a passion for woodwork and music, but unfortunately his life took a sad turn when he'd become involved in a get-rich-quick when he had become involved in a get-rich-quick money-making business. What began as a regular Monday in April quickly became a day that ended with the family's worst nightmare. On the 14th of April 2003, Wayne and his wife Joyce had been staying at the Rendezvous Observation City Hotel in Wayne's hometown of Scarborough, Perth. He had left the hotel alone in the later afternoon, early evening, as he had become involved in a kind of multi-level marketing scheme that promised to raise a large sum of money through the sale of diamonds. It is believed that Wayne had left the hotel to attend a meeting at his house in Balayura, which is still in Perth, where he would discuss a business venture he'd been planning. The authorities believe he had left the city of Scarborough in his vehicle, a bronze 1992 Toyota Lexus sedan, registration 1AUS069. At 12.43pm on that same day, 
Wayne withdrew 10,000 Australian dollars and opened up a second safety deposit box. It is believed that this was before Wayne went to the meeting. It's unknown why Wayne opened the second safety deposit box, as he would sadly vanish before it could ever be used. The last known contact Wayne had with his wife was by the telephone on the evening of Tuesday the 15th of April 2003, the day after the meeting. Since then, Wayne has not made any further contacts with his friends or family. Wayne had to take medication for his aforementioned heart condition, medication which his wife found at home after his disappearance. Without this medication, it's believed Wayne wouldn't be able to survive more than a few years. Nearly three weeks after Wayne had gone missing, on Sunday the 4th of May 2003, Wayne's wife Joyce reported him as missing. And on the following day, Monday the 5th of May 2003, News reports of Wayne's disappearance were published and broadcast, reports that included the details of his vehicle and general physical description. That same day, Wayne's 1992 Toyota Lexus sedan with the registration 1AUS069 was found at the Perth Domestic Airport. Wayne has not been seen since he left the hotel. According to the detective senior sergeant on Wayne's case, the reasoning as to why it took three weeks for Wayne to be reported missing was due to pressure from investors in the diamond deal. Wayne's wife Joyce had been waiting anxiously for his return, but he did not come back, and in the days and weeks that followed, she had received several visits from strangers who had tried to convince her that her husband was safe. Joyce explains that she was made to feel that if she did go to the police, she would never see Wayne again. Wayne's brother, Gary, stated that Wayne had told him about the diamond deal and that he had warned Wayne about the dangers of such a lucrative transaction. Wayne's brother goes on to say that Wayne liked the high life. Quotes, his last words to us on the day about this, he said, well, if everything goes right, then I'll see you. Sounded so harebrained for my way of thinking. Wayne also said he was raising money on behalf of a facilitator who would exchange and resell the diamonds to yield a substantial profit for those who invested in the deal. Investigators identified about 40 people from across the country of Australia who'd invested their money in the diamond deal, but say they are reluctant to help with the police's inquiries. A Roman national called Nick Stewart had been the facilitator of the one million Australian dollar diamond deal that Wayne had been involved in. Nick Stewart is currently wanted in Romania for allegedly being involved as the facilitator in a Bucharest diamond deal in 1996, in which a man who had the cash for the transaction disappeared, with his car being found abandoned. Investigators found that Nick Stewart had left Australia a week after Wayne had last been seen alive. The police raided his home in May and June of 2003 and uncovered rifles, shotguns, a revolver, ammunition and a book called Be Your Own Undertaker, How to Dispose of a Dead Body. Investigators believe that Nick Stewart had been the mastermind behind the entire scheme and had played a role in Wayne's disappearance. The connection between Nick Stewart and Wayne was found after Nick had made a phone call on the 2nd of April 2003 to a mobile phone owned by Wayne, though Wayne had registered it under a false name. Between April 16th and April 23rd, Nick Stewart booked a flight back to Romania from Australia, sold his car, and accessed a safety deposit box in the same bank as the one Wayne had opened his second unused safety deposit box. Then, Nick flew back to Romania. There is currently no evidence to suggest that Nick Stewart has ever returned to Australia since he left in 2003, and he is still wanted by Romanian authorities. Investigators believe that Wayne had been killed and robbed of more than 800,000 Australian dollars in cash that had been raised to buy Eastern European diamonds that, unbeknownst to Wayne and the investors, probably never existed in the first place. Without a body, though, this theory is unproven. In late 2012, a coroner involved in the investigation stated that he was confident that Wayne had likely died shortly after his disappearance and that Nick Stewart had been involved. 
Senior Sergeant Glenn Potter investigated Wayne's disappearance and stated that the case should serve as a warning to anyone considering getting involved in black market deals or quick cash deals. Quote, there's a quick fix, a quick book in it, and the reality is they don't exist and a lot of pain is caused, he said. And in this case, we've seen it by people trying to make money very quickly without asking the right questions. Wayne's wife, Joyce, has welcomed these findings, stating, quote, I'm glad that it's all over now, she said. His daughter, Deborah, says she hopes that one day her family will find out exactly what happened to their father, quote, everyone needs to come forward with anything that they possibly have, no matter how little it is. It might be the missing link one day, she said. Despite this theory, the police are still investigating the possibility that Wayne may have left the country on his own accord or had met with foul play. The connection between Wayne and our flat top John Doe is loose, but can't be completely ruled out. Wayne Dennis George Druett would be 75 years old today. If you have any information in relation to the disappearance of Wayne, his movements or sightings of his vehicle between Monday 14th of April and Monday 5th of May 2003, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000. The answers to this enigma, to this perplexing and heartbreaking mystery, are likely lost forever in the mountain ranges of the White River National Park, flat tops of Colorado. There had been a reason that our John Doe had hiked to that specific location in the Colorado mountains, and there had been a reason that our John Doe, as he laid dying in his sleeping bag, wrote a note to someone he cared deeply about. He had made fun remarks about the plans that should be carried out after the discovery of his remains. He wrote his last words on what was probably a cold day, waiting for rescue, hoping desperately that he would be found and he could throw his notebook away. Somebody out there, maybe even somebody watching this video, is waiting, just as he was, for another glimpse of him. A family member, a friend, a clerk at his favourite store, a childhood friend. Everybody deserves to go back home. Everybody deserves to be laid to rest by their loved ones. If you have any information about this case, please contact the Garfield County Sheriff's Office at 970-945-1377, extension 1025. The case number is 04-1656. Alternatively, contact Garfield County Coroner's Office and ask to speak to Robert Glassmere at 970-309-1042 or Zanika Pezek at 970-319-4491. My analytics say that more than half of the people that watch my videos aren't actually subscribed, so if you could hit that subscribe button and that notification bell, it would mean the world to me. It's completely free and you can always unsubscribe later. I upload a brand new Curious Case episode every Sunday and a shorter video every Wednesday which looks at current and ongoing events in the true crime world called This Week in True Crime. Make sure you go and get your hands on the 23 new stickers I just launched on my shop. They're fully waterproof, made by me and my team, and every purchase contains a 10% donation to the DNA Doe Project. You can also grab anything else in the store at the moment for 15% off if you fancy. My social media is at it's Joshua Miles on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at Joshua Miles TikTok on TikTok. With all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice and support. This episode was researched by Helena Alexandra and Joshua Miles. Written for production, hosted and edited by Joshua Miles. Closed captions by Katie Eaton. Mm -hmm.